The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. If you've listened to any Ringer podcast before, you may have heard us talk about FrameBridge. You probably know they make it super easy and affordable to custom frame your favorite things from print and posters to the photos on your phone. But did you also know that a custom frame photo from FrameBridge makes for the perfect Mother's Day gift? It's ridiculously easy. Order in a few minutes and FrameBridge will send you a one-of-a-kind framed picture that your mom will love. That perfect gift for mom is already on your phone. Here's how it works. Just go to FrameBridge.com. Pick a great photo. The expert team at FrameBridge will frame it and send it straight to you, or they can deliver straight to your mom in time for Mother's Day. Preview your item online in any frame style. Choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The amazing team at FrameBridge will expertly frame your item in days, not weeks or months, and deliver your finished gift ready to hang. Their prices start at $39 for a completely custom gift, and all shipping is free. Plus, our listeners get 15% off their first order at FrameBridge.com when they use code RINGER. FrameBridge has thousands of five-star reviews and even offers a happiness guarantee. If for any reason you aren't 100% satisfied with your order, they'll make it right. Order a custom gift for any mom in your life straight from your phone. Go to FrameBridge.com and use promo code RINGER. You'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to FrameBridge.com, promo code RINGER. FrameBridge.com, promo code RINGER. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I am a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, home of the Ringer NBA show in all of its various forms. We've got more basketball content than we know what to do with here during the playoffs. We also have a new food podcast called the Dave Chang Show. So I encourage you to sink your teeth into that. And if you enjoy our spoken content, we also produce written content at TheRinger.com, where we have NFL draft analysis, spicy NBA takes, Marvel's Avengers Infinity War, and much, much more. Today's show might be titled Ringer MLB Show Infinity Bends because we have multiple bends. Ben Glicksman, Ringer editor, comes on to talk about Astros right-hander Garrett Cole. And as usual, Ben Lindbergh, our closer, talks about Yankees shortstop Didi Gregorius and Angels shortstop Andrelton Simmons. We always love talking about Andrelton Simmons on the Ringer MLB Show. Ben wrote an article that ran uh, late last week about their transformation, those two players, from glove-first shortstops to offensive forces, so be sure to check that out, uh, and we'll discuss that later on the show. But first, we head to Los Angeles, home of the Dodgers and Corey Seager's busted elbow, and also ringer writer Zach Cram. Zach, how are you on this heavy day in Los Angeles? Not needing Tommy John surgery, so I'm uh, better than some people out here. It's good. Yeah, so this is not what, obviously not what we intended to to talk about on this segment, but this is earth-shaking as far as the National League West race goes. Yeah, the Dodgers had started off slowly. They were 12 and 15 heading into yesterday, seven games behind the Diamondbacks for the division lead. And there were some signs of concern, but I wasn't 
truly worried. I, just last year, the Dodgers had a mediocre April and then finished with the best record in baseball. So they've showed this ability before. Justin Turner hasn't played yet. So you could think pretty easily, oh, well, once he comes back, the Dodgers will round into shape. But Corey Seager's, besides maybe Kershaw, their best player, he's certainly their best position player. Over the last two seasons, he ranks fifth among all position players in baseball and war. And this is just massive. Now I'm really worried about the Dodgers this year. It's the equivalent of the Indians losing Francisco Lindor, the Cubs losing Chris Bryant, which, yes, the Dodgers have the depth to somewhat try to replace Seager. He's not going to be replaced by a purely zero war player. But even if they have viable fill-ins at the position of need, it's just impossible to replace everything Seager does for the Dodgers. Heck, just look at their lineup. Last night, Chase Utley was their number two hitter. He hadn't done that besides twice this past week. The last time he had been the number two hitter in a lineup was 2015. So you said he can't replace that guy. There's, I don't know if you want to jump right to this, but there is a you know ready-made similar type of player who uh, is on a team that's going nowhere in particular for the uh, for the remainder of his contract and that's Manny Machado so obviously as soon as this happened that's the name that started popping up uh you know this is the Dodgers ought to go get Machado what do you think of that that proposition I think first off that's not necessarily in Andrew Friedman's MO since he took over the Dodgers uh, yes he traded for you Darvish at the trade deadline last year but he didn't really have to give up many prospects. And I think if you trade for Machado, especially this early in the season, that is almost a full year. So the cost would be a lot higher than if you waited until July 31st. Part of me wonders what happens. Like, So the Dodgers are currently eight games behind the Diamondbacks. They play them three more times this week. And I believe they have a series against the Diamondbacks again just a week from now. If they go like one and five or two and four in those games, all of a sudden you're in a double digit deficit. And I wonder if it's even worth trading for Machado at that point. I, I don't think they should go so far. I saw last night there was a Twitter conversation about whether the Dodgers should just pack it in and trade Kershaw. And I, of course, don't think they need to resort to such drastic measures right now. But I wonder if realistically, if the Dodgers fall any further behind in the next week, if they think trading for Machado can even salvage what's going on, if that's worth the prospect burden for someone who will be a free agent at the end of the season. Right. And I think I don't think it's going to happen for a couple of reasons. The first one is it just seems too easy. Like, the, I mean, and that means nothing, but it just feels like one of those things that um, it's just too perfect to actually uh, get. You know, I have no idea if, if they've even discussed it yeah, internally or with the Orioles. The other thing, there are a couple other uh, reasons why I don't think it, it really makes sense. One of them is the one you just alluded to, which is they're already eight games back of a really good Arizona team. And you can make up eight games against a really good team over the course of five months, but you can't do it if you make that trade at the deadline and try to make it up in two. Like it, it's just not it's not realistic to expect that. And I don't know if you go trade I don't know, Mitchell White and Alex Verdugo and whatever else it takes, because the Orioles aren't exactly in a hurry to dump him either, or else they would have done it already. So the price is going to be high. And I don't know if a rental position player for the National League wildcard game is really worth, you know, selling, you know, selling out a lot of the top of your farm system. The other thing is 
they're in a position sort of like where the Cubs are right now. And it's, I don't think it's as extreme, but they've brought up this incredible wealth of young talent and we just expect them to have this great farm system and their farm system's still good. And they still have all that young talent, just they're using it right now. So like they need Walker Bueller. They are probably going to need Alex Verdugo right now. So if you're trading those guys to Baltimore to plug a hole with Manny Machado, then you don't have those guys who you need in your rotation or in the outfield as Chris Taylor moves to shortstop or what, you know, or, you know, Logan Forsyth uh, continues to be hurt and or ineffective or Turner gets hurt. And the other thing is, if you're going to give all that up for a rental, you probably want to make an effort to retain Machado. And that means just in terms of, you know, obviously you'd love to have Turner, uh, Seager and Machado in the same lineup, but I don't know if there's space on the field for all three of them. You know, you'd probably have to move Justin Turner and maybe that's a problem you deal with this offseason. But there are just so many other moving parts besides plugging in this like for like player and just assuming that the Dodgers, because they're a big market team that's developed young talent, well, can pull off a trade like that right now, because I think it has to be soon if they're going to do it. Right. And it the fact that we're even discussing this is kind of remarkable. I mean, yes, it's May 1st. There's still a lot of time. The Dodgers could easily cut the deficit to three over the next week and a half if they play well against Arizona. But this is a team that's won five straight division titles. They were the clear favorite for a sixth straight. A lot of people at our website picked the Dodgers either to return to the World Series or win it outright for the first time since 1988. And their season could potentially be done within a month and a half, which doesn't typically happen in a baseball season at all. And it has required a couple just remarkable developments from Kenley Jansen losing control of the strike zone to their best position player being hurt. I uh, reread your preseason power rankings piece last night about the NL West and your summation of Arizona's chances was rather prescient. You wrote, as it stands, they're probably headed for the wild card again, unless something goes badly in Los Angeles. Well, uh, a number of things have gone quite badly in Los Angeles, and even as poorly as the first month went, nothing was nearly as bad as losing Seager for the rest of the season. Yeah, and there are a couple ways. You know, you, you mentioned the five straight division titles, and every time a team that just seems to be knocking on the door year after year, like every time something goes wrong, there's a worry that this is like. Uh, 2012 Phillies or 2017 Blue Jays disease where this is just the end and I don't think like if they wind up going 84 and 78 and missing the playoffs and they bring Kershaw back you know I, I they're going to be fine you know they'll be right back among the division favorites next year but it's just going to be annoying because that fan base is starting to you know, I don't want to speak for for Dodgers fans but you know they, you could forgive them for for being impatient you know just breaking through to the World Series last year, coming close to winning it. You know, you expect, you know, positive progress every year, even though that's even though I think everybody knows that's not completely realistic. So it's it would be frustrating. I think it would be annoying, but it wouldn't be the end of this run. Certainly. And even just for Seeger himself, because he is a position player who needs Tommy John surgery as opposed to a pitcher, I think that's a lot more calming for his long term future. Uh, you know, if Noah Syndergaard needed Tommy John surgery, all of a sudden that throws a wrench in all of the Mets' future plans. Seager is probably going to be okay next year. The history of position players returning is one, they don't take as long to come back, and two, they generally return to their prior level of performance. In a sense, broadly speaking, it's almost a 
a sign of it's almost a good thing for the Dodgers in so much as it explains why Seager has been struggling so much. He suffered the elbow discomfort last fall and sat for a while during the Dodgers losing streak. Even this season, he wasn't really hitting all that well. This at least explains it. And yes, if Seager misses the whole season, he's no longer at the Correa or Lindor tier of best young shortstops. But now we have an obvious justification for what's going wrong, and you can expect him to return to full-level all-star MVP candidate in 2019. So I think it's sort of sadly appropriate that we came in here intending to talk about how great the Diamondbacks started been and then wound up talking about the Dodgers for the first 10 minutes of the segment, because it seems like no matter how good the Diamondbacks are, that's they just always get overshadowed by it their division rivals, but they're you know, way off the front in the National League West right now. And they too have suffered from some injury problems. I would imagine that no Arizona John surgery. I, I would imagine no Arizona fan feels sorry for the Dodgers right now because the reason that Arizona was so good last year, and I think the reason a lot of people expected them to regress in 2018 is because they stayed really healthy for all of last season. Their five best starters all made at least 25 starts. And that led to one of the best pitching staffs of the modern era. But Taiwan Walker's already out for the season with Tommy John surgery. Robbie Ray is uh, hurt with an oblique injury. And manager Tori Lavulo doesn't sound optimistic about his timeline. What was that quote you saw yesterday? Something like, some guys take two weeks, some guys take two years to return? Yeah, it was delivered with such this... Some guys could take two weeks, some guys could take two years. It's impossible for me to predict a time frame, so I can't give that to you. It's like I imagine him wearing a a black uh, turtleneck and smoking a a parliament while he's delivering that line. Like It's very like French existentialist. Yeah, and on the position player side, they have been missing Jake Lamb for almost the entire season, which leads to a division leader starting Daniel Descalso in 2018 which shouldn't happen. Uh, Steven Souza hasn't played yet, and he was really their big offseason acquisition, their attempt to plug the whole J.D. Martinez left in free agency. So they haven't really been healthy either, but they've just overcome it. The obvious stat is that they've won every series they've played so far, which is the longest to start a season in over 100 years. But what's almost even more impressive about that is they haven't been beating up on the tanking teams. They've only played the Padres three times. They haven't played the dregs of the NL East or Central yet. They're 7-1 and one after last night against the Dodgers. They've won series against Colorado and St. Louis and Washington. They're a good team, and they're beating good teams, and that bodes well for the rest of the season. Yeah, that I mean, that's 7-1 record against the Dodgers, and obviously that might change uh, by the time you listen to this. It's so reminiscent of how the balance of the balance of power in the American League West over the past few years has been predicated mostly on which of the Rangers or Astros wins the head-to-head battle. Because I mean, it's it's so it just when you when you play each other nineteen times a year and one team you know one team goes like sixteen and three or something that can just have such an outsized effect on on blowing open a division race that in actuality ought to be pretty evenly matched. And the Diamondbacks have been winning in, uh, as opposed to the Dodgers doing so with a complete team. The Dodgers have been spotty in relief. The Diamondbacks have nine pitchers who have 
thrown out of the bullpen this season, not one of them has an ERA above three. There's no Wilmer Font in Arizona costing them games. Well, there's no Wilmer Font in <laughs> LA anymore either. Uh, he's now moved on to giving up home runs in Oakland. But the Diamondbacks also have, you know, apologies to Clayton Kershaw. They've had the best pitcher in the division so far this season. Patrick Corbin has the third best strikeout rate in baseball. And I sort of asked this jokingly. I don't actually believe it. What are the odds Patrick Corbin, who's a free agent this winter, makes more money than Clayton Kershaw? But I think Corbin is certainly playing himself into a nine-figure deal. He's still in his 20s, and he's just pitching at a level that few pitchers in all of baseball are at. Yeah, you made a huge mistake saying that around Ryan Hot takes O'Hanlon. Well, I think Kershaw's going to make more money, but Corbin, who was a Yankee fan growing up, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but he made a comment in the offseason about how he'd love to play closer to home. Uh, The Yankees, who are probably going to go after a starting pitcher this winter, could very well throw $150 million at him if he sustains even remotely close to this pace over the full season. I think even though it's only been a month, it's hard to pitch this well for this long if you're not actually that good. Uh, It's hard to fake it. Fangraphs has splits by month going back to 2002. And in that span, Corbin this year ranks sixth among all starters in strikeout rate at the end of April. He's up among guys like Garrett Cole this year and Yu Darvish and Max Scherzer and Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard. Like all those guys are just dominant strikeout pitchers. So even to do what he's done for a month shows his talent and probably a level of sustainability that you wouldn't have expected before the season. Yeah, it's I mean, you can fluke into a good month. I don't know if you can fluke into it the way Corbin's done it. And, you know, between him and Tyler Skaggs pitching well in L.A., it's been a pretty good month for guys who got traded for Dan Heron. I think, you know, if the um, if a team's looking for a reliable postseason ace at the deadline, somebody ought to give Joe Saunders a call and see what he's up to. Where is Joe Saunders these days? Fishing, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have no idea where Joe Saunders is. Um, and that's probably the way he wants it. But we will have to keep an eye on where you are next week because we got to do another podcast. But until then, thanks for coming on, Zach Cram. Thank you so much. Ben Glitzman will join me to talk about Astros right-hander Garrett Cole in just a second. But we'll be right back after this message from Backblade. The Backblade 2.0 is the easiest do-it-yourself back and body shaver, period. If you're the guy afraid to take your shirt off at the gym, the pool, the beach, or even in front of that special someone, because your back and body hair has you looking like you're wearing a sweater, then it's time you escape your ape with the Backblade 2.0. The Backblade 2.0 comes with an ergonomically curved handle, giving you a full range of motion and allowing you to reach all those hard-to-reach areas. The Backblade 2.0 also comes with two of their unique Dry Glide patented safety blades, which creates the smoothest shave in just minutes and can be used both wet or dry. I can already think of about three or four friends of mine who have their fair share of back bush and could absolutely use the back blade. Ladies, if you're tired of shaving your man's back for him, this might be the best upcoming Father's Day gift ever. Get your back blade today at backblade.com. Use promo code SHAVE30 and save 30% on a start bundle today. That's B-A-K-Blade.com, promo code SHAVE30, because at Backblade, we've got your back. All right, we are going multi-barreled Ben here on this episode of the Ringer MLB show because making his Ringer MLB show debut is Ringer editor Ben Glucksman. How you doing? 
I'm doing well. How's everything going with you? I am doing great. I just uh, got to write about Garrett Cole. That article should be up, I believe, tomorrow if you're listening to this on Tuesday. If you're one of the people who listens to this show as soon as it drops on Tuesday afternoon. Hi, mom. <laughs> and I thought as you as, uh, you know, a Pittsburgher and a Yankee fan might have a unique insight on Garrett Cole and watching him do what he's done, which is essentially in his first six starts with the Astros, be the best pitcher in baseball. Essentially. Yeah. So I guess if by insight you mean frustration, I definitely have frustrated thoughts on Garrett Cole. So I guess to back up, I am a Yankees fan. I went to high school in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. So from a Pittsburgh perspective, it's frustrating because the teams that he was on for for the Pirates were the best teams the Pirates have had since Barry Bonds was in town. And it seems like at the end of his tenure, he had sort of lost it. Like he had given up a ton of home runs last year and just seems like basically Jeff Samarja or Marco Estrada and not the ace that everyone thought he was going to be. And there was all these talks during the offseason now, now shifting to the Yankee side of it that it was inevitable he was going to the Yankees, right? This is this was a done deal at three or four different times between December and January, and it just seems like they were sort of figuring out the pieces. It was going to be Clint Frazier and uh, Chance Adams, the Yankees outfield and pitching prospects, and then maybe one more piece, but they were sort of quibbling over the details, and then everything fell apart, and he went to the Astros, who knocked the Yankees out in the ALCS last year, and... Yeah, apparently has fixed his home run problems and has turned back into a superhero ace. So I would love to hear your thoughts as to how this transformation has occurred. Well, so there's a the thing about the Pirates and they've got this reputation and their pitching coach Ray Searage for teaching guys a sinker and resurrecting players' career, resurrecting pitchers' careers. Like Francisco Liriano, Jay Happ, um, uh, mm-hmm. and some Volquez, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And Garrett Cole, and this is the the thrust of my article, Cole came out of high school, essentially, um, when he was drafted in the first round by the Yankees and didn't sign. So, you know, I guess the Yankees missed out on him twice now. Um, He came out of high school, like, fully formed as as the prototypical ace. And unlike a lot of guys who uh, get a lot of pitchers who get drafted in the first round and go to college, he didn't get hurt. He didn't regress like nothing bad happened to him he was just really good and ucla was really good when he was there and the pirates made him the number one overall pick and this the performance particularly the strikeout numbers has never really matched the raw stuff you think of his you know upper 80s uh fastball great change up he's one of it's he could throw two breaking pitches which is rarer than uh than you might think um and it's, you know, I got into a lot of stuff like his velocity spread wasn't that great until he started using his curveball more. Uh, the fact that he throws so many strikes means that if everything's hard, hitters can time it and, you know, they might get contact just by accident. But the big thing is he gets to Pittsburgh and he learns a sinker. And that's great against like the old uh, orthodox swing down at the ball. Uh, swing plane, but now the guys are starting to swing up at the baseball, try to elevate the pitch. You throw a four seam fastball, which is more or less level. Then, if you get over that, they're going to pop it up. But if they miss uh, on a if uh, if you throw a sinker into that swing path, you know I put it to them like that. You know, if you throw a sinker into an upward swing path, you're going to give up a lot of home runs. And he just sort of uh, 
it was very obvious that he didn't want to go into great detail about this, but he just said, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So what he's done since going to Houston right. is essentially junk his his sinker and go complete with the completely with the four seamer. He's throwing his breaking pitches more as are almost every pitcher in baseball. But I think that's the biggest adjustment. And I think there's a little bit, you know, just by concentrating on one fastball, he's throwing it better with more confidence and precision. Like he talked about getting behind the ball better. And I think just all of that has resulted in the the revelation of the ace that everybody expected him to be outside when he came out of UCLA, at least for now. Right. So I have I have a couple questions. So this was Cole who said this to you, not Sirich, yes. correct? Yeah. So I guess my my first question then is Sirich, like you mentioned, is known as this pitching guru, right? You went through the names, even Ivan Nova, a former Yankee as well, um, looked really good when he first got to Pittsburgh. This is now the second guy on Houston, Charlie Morton, who completely silenced the Yankees last night is another former Pittsburgh Pirate who, after going to the Astros, has taken his game up to a high, extremely high level. For someone who's known as a guru, how is Searage and how is a Pittsburgh front office that is known as pretty analytically minded missing on these guys? I don't think it's fair to blame them for Morton or to just because he was just the fact that Morton got to pitch effectively in the in the big leagues, at least for a while with Pittsburgh, is a like that's more than anybody expected from him. And just the shock with which his like this incarnation of, you know, upper nineties with the curveball he has that he started showing sort of in his last days in Pittsburgh and then during his year in Philadelphia and now with the Astros, like that the question was not whether he was good. You know, when they when they got rid of him, it was whether he could stay healthy and that, you know, and during his year in Philadelphia, he didn't. And that's why he, you know, the Astros got him for as cheap as they did. And he's managed to stay healthy over the past year or two. He's just such a I I think there were developmental. I don't want to say differences, but like if they didn't develop him perfectly, but I think they you know, I don't think it's it's fair to blame them for not seeing what he became in, in Houston. Cause I don't, I don't think anybody really saw that coming, including the Astros, at least not to this extent. And Cole, like it just all made yeah. sense. Like throwing that sinker, it's just a, a matter of adaptability in the past couple years and the swing plane revolution, the juice ball and, you know, just the difference in, in, in approach that, uh, that hitters are taking now. And I'm going to talk to other Ben about this with Didi Gregorius in a second. It just, this runs counter to like a hundred years worth of uh, of baseball orthodoxy. So it's, if this is the, the issue like that, they're not adapting. First of all, it's not universal. Not every hitter has changed swing like this, but it's, you know, you can forgive them for being a little bit slow to adapt. And, you know, if, if the sinker still works, it does, what it you know what it usually does and there are guys like Shohei Otani's out pitches the sinker if you've got that kind of sinker this will still work it's just that sort of downward motion on the two seamer I think the approach is a little bit outmoded and even then only because the hitting revolution has you know the state of hitting has changed so much in the past year or two right it's just uh, it's jarring because for a few years there, I basically had blind faith in Ray Searage to turn whoever was on the Pirates staff into somebody who could win 15 games. I figured if you could sort of plug me into the Pirates rotation in spring training, I would start throwing 95. I would develop a, a competent breaking pitch. Uh, and, and 
Cole in particular has sort of poked a hole in that in a way that um, that other pitchers previously have not. And I'd say, like, I wonder if that reputation, like every so often, like there's always one pitching coach, right, who has that miracle worker reputation. You know, right. he, t- he teaches everybody one pitch, whether it's you know Dave Duncan with the the sinker or Searage or Dan Warden with the slider, or Don Cooper, or the White Sox with the cutter. I wonder if just that expectation, like, wow, he turned Francisco Liriano, who looked washed, into one of the best pitchers in baseball. Like, it's, I, it might be too much to expect him to do that with literally you or whichever, you know, all, all pirates pitchers. I'll, you know, I'll, <laughs> you've never, you've never seen me pitch. That's true. I have great stuff. Well, let me say that, like, all p- pirates pitchers, except for like Nova and, are like they're pretty much Jeff Locke in my head. Like it's just a, a parade of Jeff Locks. So whoever today's Jeff Locke yeah. is, it's uh, it's probably unfair to expect that to work every single time. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other the other thing with Cole that I would just be interested to get your take on is what do you think would have? So they took a deal. The Pirates took a deal for him in which they got Colin Moran, who seems like an okay third baseman, like he was a former top prospect, but seems like an okay third baseman. They got Joe Musgrove, who has upside, but has been on the DL basically all season. Why did the Pirates not take the deal for Clint Frazier and Chance Adams? That seems like a vastly better deal. Again, I am 100% biased here, but it seems like Clint Frazier is far and away a better prospect than Moran or anybody that the Pirates got in this deal was. And Chance Adams is a better second piece than anything that the Pirates ended up getting. So I guess from both a Yankees angle and a Pirates angle, I was just very confused by the ultimate return that the Pirates got from him. Yeah, that that I don't have a good answer for you on. Because that I like I remember where I was when that Cole news broke. And I remember like waiting. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> I, I remember waiting for like, OK, when does Kyle Tucker get get thrown in this deal? Like because this is. I think, you know, Frazier's a guy whose stock has fallen a little bit over the past nine months or so, and Moran's stock has gone up a lot. But all three, you know, mm-hmm. Musgrove, Moran, and Michael Feliz all have major league experience and, like, fairly substantial major league experience in the rotation. And much in Musgrove's case, like, to a certain extent, this is what this was. We know what Joe Musgrove is. And I like Joe Musgrove in certain roles, particularly as, like, a multi inning reliever. I don't think he's like if he's the best player you get back for, even if you think Cole was like Lance Lynn with more fastball velocity, which is what he looked like the past couple years. Like that's not enough. And it's just shocking to me that they didn't get more for him, even if Cole's value is at its lowest when they traded him. And that's and I don't know. It's I know some people who are higher on Moran. I know some people who were much lower at Cole on the, at the time, but it's just shocking to me that nobody, you know, that the Pirates didn't get a better deal from somebody else because everybody could have used a pitcher like Garrett Cole, even if Garrett Cole was just what he looked like last year. Yeah, totally. I mean, it seems like the sticking point for the Yankees was they have to either give up Glaber Torres or Miguel Andujar, um, both of who are currently on the big league team. And Cashman just wasn't going to let that happen, um, which I thought made sense. Cashman was basically like, we have the best offer for you. We're going to sit on this offer. You're eventually going to come back to us. And then they decided to go with Houston, 70 cents on the dollar deal, which is depressing in a number of ways. I think calling that 70 cents on the dollar is 
is a, a little charitable. The interesting thing about this is, <laughs> like, you go back a full year, and I remember the A's being in town last May or June, and Sonny Gray was just coming off the DL, and everybody thought, like, he was the move that the Astros were going to make. That, you know, yeah, he, Astros, the, yeah, around the Astros, like, it seemed as likely that Gray would end up in Houston uh, as it seemed like Cole would end up in New York. And it's interesting, this road not traveled thing that you know, although you know Sonny Gray looked okay last night but interesting interesting is one word for it infuriating is another word for yeah, it Sonny Gray is you know it's terrible. really annoying I mean, he was he was fine he was fine last night he was fine last night but let's not act like he did any he pitched just well enough to lose sure so yeah I, that, well I, guess I mean that when you're going progress. up against Charlie Morton I don't know what the I know. There's only the so much in baseball. Do. Yeah, so. Garrett Cole is number one, and Charlie Morton is number two. So, really, the odds are stacked against us in this series. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been fun talking to you. I I really do feel for you because you know you just look at look at what's happened to Cole and Gray, and you wonder <laughs> when will the Yankees ever catch a break. So you know. I know. I, I think we're due. I think we're due. I mean, maybe if Cashman swings a few more Shane Green for D.D. Gregorius trades will be on our way. All right. Well, we'll be talking about the Shane Green and D.D. Gregorius trade with when our cavalcade of Ben's continues with Ben Lindbergh. But until then, Ben Glicksman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh right after this. Want an unfair advantage to dominate your fantasy baseball league? Well, look no further and download SquadQL for free for your Apple and Android devices. SquadQL is the only mobile app you need to crush your friends and rivals this year. It recommends the best starting lineup each day based on your starters, bench players, and free agent pool. How does SquadQL actually do this? The app connects directly with your Yahoo, ESPN, and CBS leagues, pulling in your actual roster and your league scoring system. It also provides waiver wire recommendations, daily updates to player rankings, and much more. Head to the Apple app and Google Play stores to download SquadQL, your all-in-one fantasy baseball manager. SquadQL is brought to you by the creators of RotoQL, the leading daily fantasy lineup optimizer trusted by more than 100,000 DFS players. You can also download RotoQL for free for both Apple and Android. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, Ben will cut you down. Ben Lindbergh is joining the Ringer MLB show as he does every week, this time to talk about Didi Gregorius, the best shortstop in Yankees history, question mark? <laughs> He's up there, certainly. I know that I said I wanted to be Matt Albers when we talked to one of our, our recent appearances, but I think I want my podcast persona to be Josh Hader now. I think that's, that's probably the better Brewers reliever to emulate. I'll come in. I'll strike out eight, two and two thirds. So Didi is not only... One of the best shortstops in recent Yankees history, certainly top two, I would say, but he is a top five shortstop (laughs) in all of baseball since the start of last season. And he is also a top 20 position player, period, since the start of last season. And that is obviously underrating how well he's playing now which is best player in baseball level. He is leading everyone in Fangraphs war and baseball prospectus war. Only baseball reference and its love for Mike Trout is preventing the trifecta. This just seems unfair. (laughs) The Yankees for most of our lifetimes have been sort of this avatar of unrestrained capitalism, the, the bullying might of the almighty dollar. And now they're like disconcertingly good at player development. 
Yeah, it's true. And I know there's always been a perception that there would be like veterans who were on their last legs and then they'd come to the Yankees and they'd have a, a great renaissance season. It's always just seemed like the Yankees lead a charmed life in that respect. Probably just Yankees hitters, Yankees haters being bitter and I don't blame them. But you're right. Whereas the Yankees always used to be just sign the free agents, get the old guys and, you know, carry their contracts while they get worse and worse. Now they're actually good, and yes, they have some older and expensive guys, but they have a whole homegrown team that's actually pretty good and is winning lots of baseball games right now. And even the older, you know, the older guys, you know, CC Sabathia has been with the team forever. He, he's pretty much a Yankee lifer at this point. Stanton is in his age twenty eight season. Didi's in his age twenty eight season. Brett Gardner's the oldest everyday regular on the team at thirty four, and he's a homegrown player. So this is. You know, just another example of the Yankees, you know, adapting to to modern times. This is not a 90s Yankees team, despite Mm -hmm. the number of names you'd recognize or they might play sort of a similar style, like a mashing offensive driven Mm -hmm. style of baseball. But this team's built more or less the same way as the Astros and the Dodgers. If I didn't know better, I'd say you were falling for the Yankees. Is that true? Are you catching the Yankees? I know better. (laughs) Sound like a Yankee sympathizer, at least. We're going to get back to Didi in a second, but I had my first Glaber Torres in-person experience last night. Uh I am falling for Glaber Torres. That that kid is legit. And the Miguel Andujar experience has has also been pretty positive so far. So (laughs) there's your middle infield for the next decade. The thrust of your article was Didi Gregorius and Andrelton Simmons are, or they came up as sort of glove first uh, shortstops. And you think about all the stories about little league fields in the Netherlands, former Netherlands Antilles being littered with pebbles. And so you have mm-hmm. to, you know, develop really good hands. And that's like part of the, it's as much the cultural legend bordering on stereotype as, as like, wasn't it Juan Gonzalez who hit with a stick and bottle caps and stuff when he was the cardboard box that you fold into a ball, right? At the, the same sort of narrative that we get accurate in many cases, but, you know, maybe told too many times. But yeah, you're right. I I think because of that, maybe in part, they both developed into really good fielders. And even when they were playing side by side as double play partners, when one of them was six and the other was seven, even then Andrelton Simmons was playing short. I think people always recognized how good he is. But when they were coming up and I, I went back and I looked at the blurbs in the old baseball prospectus books and baseball America books, and whether it was the scouts or the stat heads, they were all agreed that these guys had great gloves, that the gloves would probably get them to the big leagues, but that they couldn't hit and they weren't patient and they had no power. All they really did was make contact and, and have some bat control, but no one really forecasted offensive success, let alone stardom for them. And when I talked to Andrelton and Didi, they both kind of had the chip on the shoulder thing going where you know they remember the slights from people when they were coming up saying that they were automatic outs and, you know, I think Simmons said painting them as one trick ponies who were just defenders who couldn't hit. And obviously they have both fielded well. Simmons is maybe the best fielder in baseball over the last several years. And Didi is at least an average, maybe an above average shortstop with which, you know, coming after Jeter makes him look like Simmons. So I think that's great and that makes them valuable. But now they have become really good hitters, too, and they've evolved as hitters. There, there are two things about that I think are interesting, and I don't know if you think they're generalizable, so let me run it past you. One of them is both these guys 
you know, we talked about the bat control. The bat to ball was never like even when when Simmons was total crap offensively, he still didn't strike out a lot. He had really good hand eye coordination. And I wonder yeah. if like that's all of a piece with that being mm-hmm. a great reactive fielder, having great hands in the field that to a certain extent, like I wonder if you can't teach that kind of that kind of skill what you know mm-hmm. by the time a player gets into his 20s and is in the upper minors or the majors like you can't teach the the physical gifts but given those physical gifts you can teach technique and that seems yeah. to be what happens or, or approach or, or you know any of the other things that that these guys have improved upon yeah they've both been very adaptable very coachable very interested in improving themselves and i talked to billy epler the angels gm and michael fishman who's the yankees agm and i asked them about what the evaluations of these players were at the time that their team's acquired them and no one expected them to blossom quite the way that they have, especially Didi, obviously. But I think they both thought that there was offensive upside there. Both the analytics and the stats said that they could become at least above average players and decent hitters. And a lot of it did have to do with that contact ability. If you can put the bat on the ball, that's half the battle, I guess. Then you actually have to put the bat on the ball with some force and and speed and strength. And I think that they've both done that to a certain extent. Didi, I think, certainly has just gotten stronger as he has matured, and that is partly responsible for his power. There's a lot going on there, I think, because partly he's just been in the right place at the right time in that I think he is one of the guys who's benefited the most from the juiced ball or whatever has been happening over the past few years. You could say juiced ball. You put enough work into this that you can say that (laughs) without having to to qualify it. No qualifiers. Yeah, I won't hedge at all. Juice ball. So because of that, I think Didi's warning track power that he had in the past is now a first few rows of the stands power. So that has helped. But even so, this year, power's down. The ball doesn't seem to be carrying quite as well. And Didi has 10 home runs. So it's not purely that. It's partly Yankee Stadium, certainly. He is someone who's just an extreme pull power guy. And every single one of his homers in his whole career has been to right field, which makes for a funny looking spray chart. But it's partially that he's in the right place at the right time. It's also that he has changed to make the most of those circumstances. So he is now hitting more balls in the air and he's hitting a higher percentage of them to the pull side. So he has tailored his game to the circumstances he found himself in. And not every player can do that. That's the other half of the trend that that I wanted to bring up is we're seeing a lot of sort of punch and Judy type middle infield prospects who have hit tool to spare trade a little bit of that hit tool for a lot of power. And it it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be like a a Jose Bautista level uh, complete swing change because sometimes the adjustments are just more subtle or if it's it's approach or just swinging harder you know swinging with more confidence but you see guys Mm -hmm. like Ozzy Albies and Scott Kingery who've developed power that when they were uh, drafted or signed out of uh, signed out of the Caribbean like nobody really thought was there and they managed to develop and turn into you know this kind of power hitter without being I think Didi might be the exception because he is a pretty big guy but Mm -hmm. it you know, the middle infield power hitter who isn't the giant imposing Corey Seager type or, or Alex Rodriguez type, who's just a normal size guy, but manages to hit the ball hard and in the air and winds up with a lot of home runs and doubles as a result. And I think that yeah. uh, could be could have significant player development implications league wide down the road. 
Yeah, I think so. And it's just tough to scout guys now because you can't ever say that someone doesn't have power because we're now in this version of baseball where almost everyone has power by the standards of an earlier era. So because of the ball, because of other factors, I think something 60 something percent of qualified hitters last year had at least 20 home runs, which, you know, in other eras would have made you a power hitter. And now it just makes you average. So that's part of it. I think we've just seen enough guys show that being small doesn't mean you can't hit for power, that now you don't really get guys who are instructed to just hit the ball on the ground or go for line drives. Almost everyone is instructed to try to hit the ball in the air. And it's not purely the power because with both of these guys, Simmons and Gregorius, it's also the selectivity and the sense of the strike zone. And so to establish some podcast continuity here, when we talked last week, we discussed how pitchers are throwing more pitches out of the strike zone. And so there are more pitches per plate appearance, more walks, more strikeouts, more hits by pitch, hit by pitches. I never know. And some guys have benefited from that, I think, just by saying, okay, throw me stuff out of the strike zone. I'm not going to swing. And that's what Didi and Andrelton are both doing. If you compare hitters this year and last year, the only guy who has reduced his chase rate more than Didi has is Lorenzo Cain, who's off to a really great start in Milwaukee. So both of these guys are, are in the top five in reductions in chase rate. So they're just spitting on these pitches that in the past they would have swung at. And because of that, I think they used to get themselves in trouble because they had this great contact ability. They could swing at pitches outside the strike zone and make contact, but it would just be an easy out. It would be weak contact. And now they're not offering at those pitches. So when they do swing, they're better able to actually hit the ball with some authority. And I don't know how much or how important you think this is, but a lot of the Yankees power, the big bats, Sanchez, Judge, and Giancarlo Stanton are big righties. And Didi Gregorius being a left-handed hitter like that, I I think I tend to think that managers overvalue the platoon advantages or Mm -hmm. the platoon advantage. But I think this would be a different lineup if the only left-handed power threat was Aaron Hicks from the left side, you know? Yeah, I think all else being equal, it's certainly beneficial to have some balance. I'd I'd always take the better hitter who hits from the same side probably sure. over yeah. the the other guy who's not as good but gives you that that break in the lineup. But yeah, I mean it definitely makes you less vulnerable to someone coming in in the late innings and mowing down a bunch of guys. It helps and especially in that stadium. So, I agree, but you know, I I think it's just kind of As I was writing this article, I was talking to the scout who signed Gregorius, and obviously he always liked him, but he didn't like him this much. And he was saying that we make these forecasts and we project what players are going to be, but we maybe underrate the importance of aptitude or adaptability, whatever you want to say. The ability to get better and embrace information, particularly in today's game where there's just so much information out there. Like, you know, the Yankees coaches have been talking to Didi about being more selective. It's not a complete coincidence that he's not swinging at these pitches. And in Andrelton Simmons' case, he got a text from Billy Epler in the middle of the 2016 season when he was really struggling. And Epler sent him some stats via text message and said, here's what you do when you succeed. And here's what you do when you don't succeed. I really like that part of the story, by the way. It was so nice. Yeah, like so, you it know, was. so positive. <laughs> right. You don't see that in, in sports. I know. Knowledge. Well, another player could have taken it a different way and said, what does this guy know? He's not on the field. I'm not going to take his advice or even be insulted by this guy up in the front office who is, you know, I'm sure very diplomatically, but still telling you what you're you're not doing well. But 
Andrelton really kind of took it to heart and talked to his coaches and put all this stuff into practice. And you could see almost a night and day difference overnight. So I think even more than ever, that quality is important today because there is that ability to improve yourself as a player if you're willing to listen and work. One more and then we'll we'll uh, sort of wrap this up. You got to ask Andrelton Simmons a question that I wanted to ask him when uh, <laughs> he was in town with Shohei Otani, which was, yeah. you know, he he came closer than anybody else uh, who was in that in either of those clubhouses when the Angels were in town to pitching at a high level because he pitched in yeah. college and and he uh, you know gave an interesting answer to when uh, you asked. I presume you asked, you know, would you want to do this? Do you think you could have? Yes, I, I somewhat apologetically asked him a Shohei Otani question. because sure, I mean, I, I apologize to every angel I asked. Him, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So, yeah, he hit 98 as a pitcher in college. He was really a, a prospect as a pitcher, drafted as a pitcher. Most teams preferred him as a pitcher. And he didn't prefer to be a pitcher. I, I think he had some uh, desire, I think, to do both. And he says that he kind of wanted to be someone who would play shortstop and pitch, but if he had to choose between them, he wanted to be the everyday guy, and he talked the Braves into letting him try that, and then they saw him play shortstop, and they said, oh, you're pretty good at that. Yeah, you're never pitching again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I do wonder, though, and you know, he said it's really impressive, obviously, to watch Otani do that, and that he's tried to imagine himself doing it, and he just doesn't know where he would find the time because of the amount of work it takes him to improve his defense and to maintain his hitting where would he find the time to pitch as well? And so I think he is probably better positioned than anyone else in that clubhouse to appreciate just how impressive what Otani is doing is. But I do wonder whether the fact that there is precedent now, there is at least one Otani, means that maybe when the next Andrelton Simmons comes along, a team might be more willing, slightly more willing to give that player a chance. And maybe that player would be more willing to entertain the possibility. So you never know. I don't think we're suddenly going to see a wave of two-way players. But if you have someone who is really talented at both the way that Simmons was, maybe teams and players will be a little bit more inclined to actually pursue that possibility. Yeah, I think the big holdup for that is Jose Canseco. Because uh, you know, you <laughs> yeah. look at a team like the Giants where you know, uh, Buster Posey played both ways in college. Brandon Belt played both ways in college. Those aren't the arms you want to go out there and risk tweaking something, you know, pitching yeah. mop up. So right. I think, it would, you know, and I think that would be a major, you know, obviously Simmons has the best throwing arm on the team, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shorter the pitchers and Otani, but he's not the guy they're going to risk. Um, yeah. So and the Canseco is throwing knuckleballs that, that should have kept him safe, but who knows what state his tendons were in <laughs> those <Yeah>. days. <laughs> so let's end with this. Didi Gregorius. Let's assume that this is peak Didi. Peak Didi or peak Jeter? <laughs> oh, man. You're going to get me in trouble, I think. I mean, right now, Didi is uh, he's currently playing at something like a 12-win a pace. <laughs> so, you know, that's better than Jeter ever was. So if this were peak Didi, if what we've seen so far this season were peak Didi, then you would take peak Didi over Jeter and over just about anyone else except peak Bonds and Ruth. So that's not a fair comparison, I think. But, I mean, Jeter was great, I think. We've probably underrated Jeter just because of the backlash so to too. the yeah. overratedness of Jeter. Jeter was really great. He was He's not sort a really of like great the cold play of baseball players, right? You know, we yeah, don't, that's true. We don't hate Jeter. We just hate all the people who lack the imagination to look beyond Jeter. 
I even like early Coldplay. So yeah, I'll, well, I'll early Coldplay is good. Early Coldplay is very good. Yeah, don't at me either. But but yes, it's true. <laughs> and early Jeter was uh, was also excellent despite his drawbacks. So let's not denigrate Derek. Let's just praise Didi. And okay, last one. And you mentioned the infamous Bob Nightingale v. Harry Frazee <laughs> tweet. Uh, yes. Is DD is the DD Gregorius trade a bigger steal than the Babe Ruth trade? <laughs> it is not. But feel free okay. to check in with me next week. I will tell All you right. then that it is still not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will do that, Ben Lindbergh. It's a pleasure as always, and for me. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. As always, I'd like to wish you clear skies and elevated swing planes for the coming week. Hope you enjoy the action until we meet again next Tuesday. Thanks to Zach Cram and to our Ben's Ben Glicksman and Ben Lindbergh. Thanks to Corey Seeger, Patrick Corbin, Garrett Cole, Charlie Morton, Didi Gregorius, and Andrelton Simmons for providing content this week. Thanks to producer Jim Cunningham. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Ringer MLB show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Escape your ape with the Backblade 2.0, complete with an ergonomically curved handle that gives you a full range of motion. The Backblade 2.0 is the easiest do-it-yourself back and body shaver, period. And it comes with two of their unique dry glide patented safety blades, which create the smoothest shave, wet or dry, in just minutes. Get your Backblade today at Backblade.com and use promo code SHAVE30 to save 30% on a start bundle. Because at Backblade, we've got your back.